I don't want it don't need it as much as I once did now I love it and I want to be able to do it but I don't need it as much as I did when I was younger Hey podcast listener you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about whether you're out training commuting or just riding around sit down and listen in because we're about to begin I got something to say man Yo welcome to episode 102 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about not needing as much as he did when he was younger. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash root. R-O-U-T-E. Okay, a review to get us underway today. It's a very quick one by... Hmm from Norway. I am not kidding. That's what they wrote. But anyway, super rating five stars, informative and to the point, just like your review. Thank you very much for taking the time out to write that. I really do appreciate it, even if it is short and sweet. If you want to write a short and sweet or even a super long review, I would love it if you headed over to the iTunes or Stitcher store because five stars makes me go... Thank you very much. Now, a couple of great articles this week. Article 1, Performance Analysis of a World-Class Sprinter During Cycling Grand Tours. So, this is a report on one cyclist, and you might have heard of him, Mr. Mark Cavendish. He's not explicitly named in the study, but if you read through it, you will pretty quickly figure out that it is Mr. Cavendish. But the study was an observational study based on cross-profile and helicopter coverage of the World Tour sprints. So it goes through 52 Grand Tour stages from 2008 to 2011. This rider, Cav, 31, 15 lost, 16 dropped, 1 crash. Pretty amazing record. He has crashed a few more times since then and just recently, by the way, as well. But over the last couple of years, he's had a ton of more wins as well. So he is one of the most prolific sprinters of our generation and probably all generations. Other information in the report, 31 stages, video analyzed for average speed for the final kilometer, sprint duration, position in the bunch, and teammates remaining at 60, 30, and 15 seconds to go. 45 stages analyzed for stage distance, elevation gain, and average speed, and the second to fifth most successful sprinters, 7665 Grand Tour wins were used as a comparison to Cav. It's not his power data that was of interest here. It was all about getting an overall picture of him in a sprinting sense. So if you look at the sprints themselves, the results for Cav and his competitors are pretty rad. And there's some highlights here, including in winning sprints, he was close to the front of the bunch prior to launching his sprint, and he had more teammates still with him at 60, 30, and 15 seconds to go. There was no difference in sprint duration or the average speed of the final kilometer between one or lost. That is really interesting. He's dropped stages had higher elevation gain 1089 meters than either won or lost 582 meters with no difference amongst the latter and compared to the second to fifth sprinters 89% cab contested fewer sprints 
at 77%, reflecting his relatively lower climbing ability. We always see him battling in the Gruppetto when we're going over big bergs. But sprinters are definitely a specific breed, and Cav is one of those. And based on course design, 70% of courses less than 1,000 meter elevation gain resulted in a bunch sprint, 20% with 1,000 to 2,000 meters gain, and none with over 2,000 meters gain. So that really shows the specificity of sprinters, and it shows when someone like Gerens or even Michael Matthews will come out to play around the 1,000 to 2,000 meters of gain in a stage. So the takeaways from this report, the races examined here were during his lead out train domination as shown in the info presented. So to beat Cav, at least back then you had to get rid of his lead out train and you don't allow him near the front of the pack before he launches his sprint. Pretty obvious stuff, but definitely not easy, and he was pretty much untouchable in a lot of racing in that period up until 2011. But this type of analysis is being done by World Tour teams right now. You can absolutely bet on that. It's there to try and work out what type of sprinters are on each team, where they can best be used, and this type of information can be useful for your team or even yourself. So if you start asking certain questions of yourself or your team or your sprinters, then the answers are really going to help you know what types of stages to go for, when to use a certain person, and how to actually get the best out of the sprint of the rider that you're aiming to win the race. So the types of questions, what type of sprints suit you, do you like long, short, do you like coming off wheels or leading from the front, how long can you hold a sprint, can you get over big climbs, what amount of climbing gain, can you struggle over to be there at the finish, do you need people around you to pace you, to help you, can you handle multiple stages? stopping are you good at tactics with its one-on-one or more people these types of questions start to paint a picture about exactly the type of rider you are and the type of terrain and sprinting and teamwork that you need to get to that finish line first so the answers for these questions really are going to come from yourself from your data so your power data from your race experience and your teammates and manager and the people around you The final takeaway that I get from this is that if you analyze things enough, maybe you don't have the fitness or whatever in certain areas, but it's possible to absolutely beat people if you can figure out what is going on. For me, it really seems like Cav was beatable. If you are able to isolate his team and then put him in a different situation, he's not like a Robbie McEwen that can just come out of nowhere. Yes, he does have the the ability to do this sometimes, but the averages don't say that, and it would have been possible for another team to come in if they were looking at it as critically as this report does. I can also bet that Giant Shimano got a lot of intel from this report and they have used it wisely because in the last two seasons they have really taken it to Cav and it has been an interesting battle which for the majority of times I think Giant Shimano have won and not just with one rider. So Article 2, and speaking of Giant Shimano and sprinting, they actually published a great article on their site about their 2014 Tour de France sprint train. So they're looking at the two sprinters that they're they're taking to the Tour, Marcel Kittel and John Degenkolb, and because they're both different types of sprinters, 
Firstly, Kittle with Pure Sprints, and then Power Sprints with John Degenkolb. They have two sprint trains to help them win races. So the Pure Sprints refers to the flat-out, very fast, and flat sprints for Marcel, and the Power Sprints are for the more endurance-based sprints after a hard day in the saddle, where the finish may be slightly uphill or after a late climb, and these are what they are identifying for Degenkolb. So the two lineups that they do have have been defined as the pure sprint formation based around having Marcel as the final man in the line. And the second is the power sprint formation where John is the last rider through as well. So the pure sprint formation involves all nine riders in the tour. So the whole tour is based around Marcel Kittle. While the power sprint formation will generally see less riders in the later stages, not everybody can get over the climbs, including Marcel. And so there are fewer riders in that formation at the end of the stage and I bet this has to be flexible as well because you don't know what is going to happen over those big burps. So for the pure sprint formation the positions can change depending on the race situation and firstly there's the sprinter Marcel Kittle, there's a lead out Tom Velas, accelerator Cone de Court, speed pilot John Degenkolb, captain Roy Curvers, positioner Albert Timmer, Positioner Tom Dumoulin, controller Drez Devans, and controller Chen Ji. So they're all involved, including Degenkolb. So that is pretty interesting to me. But that is a whole bunch of people that I'm sure can be interchanged slightly, but if they have them all there, then they're going to use all of them. Where the sprint power formation, and of course, again, the positions can change depending on the race situation. You have the sprinter, Degenkolb, lead-out, Cohn de Kurt, which we've seen this combination in the sprint videos that Shimano has been putting out, where we're getting a sense of the strength of Giant Shimano and what they're willing to do to get past other riders. It may look a little bit messy, but there is a lot on the line, and as long as nobody is coming down, then I have no problem with them being a little rough in the bunch. But moving on to the third person, the accelerator Tom Dumoulin, speed pilot Albert Timmer, speed pilot Dres Devans, butchered that name, captain Roy Curvers, and controller Cheng Ji. So again, they have the same kind of order but it's shorter and not as many controllers and no positioners. So to get an idea of what these actual names mean and what their roles are, they do have a description of each of these in the article, which it is really helpful and I'm sure it's going to help you when you watch their sprint trains come together. You can get a better understanding of who's doing what and then maybe you can apply that to your own writing and have this type of terminology used and infused into your team so it makes it easier when you're calling out and you're trying to form your lead train so you know what everybody's role is and it's explicitly defined, which explicitly defining anything makes it better instantly. So the sprinter, the most obvious one, is the final man, the one who puts the final power down in each sprint in the final few hundred meters to the line. The position requires strength, a cool head, and an eye for tactics in the sprint, as it is also up to the sprinter as much as the last man in the line to move and jump once the captain has pulled off. So your instincts are still there as a sprinter. You have to be aware you're not just being taken to the line you can sprint. There is still time for you to stuff up the sprint in the last couple of hundred meters, so you need to be totally aware of what's going on, as well as having the speed and strength to get to that line. 
So then there is the lead out, the penultimate rider in the line is the one who has the sprinter nestled on his wheel ready to pounce and it's this rider's role in the sprint to go from around 600 to around 150 or 250 metres depending on the wind speed and direction. If there's a headwind finish then the sprinter will stay on the wheel for as long as possible and if there's a tailwind the sprint unfolds earlier and carries more speed. And so the lead out man needs to have the speed and power as well as being capable of finish highly in the bunch sprints on his own. Of course we all know the most famous lead out guy in the peloton over the past five six years is Mark Renshaw. Gotta say this is opportunity central for Mark Renshaw to come out. He came third in the third stage of the Tour de France so I'm looking for him to break out with less pressure and hopefully he can score a win in the Tour de France and be well rewarded for all of his effort over the years. The next guy is the accelerator and the accelerator is the rider third from the back who when it comes to the front his role is to do a stretched out sprint increasing the pace from about one kilometer out until around the 500 from the line mark at which point the lead out man makes him move the accelerator keeps the speed high enough to keep the formation in control but balanced enough that he can maintain this until when the lead out man takes over Then it's the speed pilot, and this is probably the coolest name of the whole lot, but the role of the speed pilot is to be the first major interjection of pace into the formation within the final 1,500 metres. And the rider will usually take a 500 metre all-out pull from around 1,500 metres to go until the Flamme Rouge. And this role is to keep the pace high at the front of the bunch, or if the formation is coming from behind, then to bring up the remaining riders through to the front. This is really crucial. It's a time when the opportunists are going to start flying out and attacking. So not only do you want to keep the speed high, but you want to bring the formation to the front so that nobody is getting in there and taking a free ride and everybody else can start doing their job. So the next person, the captain, and the captain in both circumstances is the road captain at the tour. It's Roy Curvos and the road captain, like we heard about last week, with Mick Rogers for Tinkoff Saxo is the person that makes the call when the DS isn't there and doesn't know what's going on. And so there is a lot of pressure here, but for the captain in the sprint train, the role is to organize the team during the stage and to be aware of what is going on in the race of all times. So it does require a lot of experience to know when to put the lead out train together so that everybody's in the right place at the right time. The next guys, the positioners, and the positioners are the riders who bring the final sprint formation through into position after or just as the breakaway is being caught in the latter stages of the race. And their role involves a gradual increase in pace, and we'll see them at the head of the formation for between one and two kilometers each. So finally, we get to the two controllers, and the role of a controller starts long before the sprint starts, but it's the first step in setting up the sprint, and that is helping to take control of the stage and make sure that firstly, the right breakaway goes away, and one of the ideal numbers of riders, no more than five or six, and with no representatives of other sprint teams, so that they're able to contribute to the work. The job of the controllers would typically see them letting a break go, then 
settling a steady pace before gradually increasing the tempo once the gap has reached what the team deems as the maximum for the parkour. And they will start to pick up the pace and bring the riders back to set up the ensuing sprint. So riders that will jump on even with 100 kilometers to go and start protecting that front and then slowly bringing the pace up. And we see that this is what the DS is really focused on if there is a breakaway because they want to reel them back. And if you have been stuck listening to Phil and Paul over the last 20 years, then you would definitely know when these riders are starting to take action in the bunch to try and pull back the brake. Alrighty then, the nuts and bolts this week, the easy way to set training routes. And this week, I've had one athlete I coach ride four hours each way to find a 20-minute training hill. Another got stuck sucking down fumes in traffic while riding in a new city. And another one found a perfect test hill while on holiday. So two out of three ain't too bad, I guess. But here is the problem that these riders faced. They've arrived in a new location, whether it was for a holiday, a getaway, or some other reason, or whether it's a permanent move, which is something I've faced this week, and your coach or yourself have prescribed a specific workout that requires a specific type of road or climb, etc., and you have no idea where to ride. So you could go out on the bike and just go exploring, but that shit takes time. So as a racer, you don't have the time to dawdle around looking for specific training routes. So you could go out in a car or a motorbike and go hunting for places, and I'm really not against this, but it is so hard to tell how long a road will take on a bike with different gradients, different lengths, different surfaces. There's a lot of complexity that goes into the calculation of how long a piece of road will take, and you don't always know what that's going to be or what pace you're going to be riding on that road and so it gets a little tricky when you're just trying to take guesses from looking or driving at a different pace than you would be riding and because it's not so easy to estimate your time it becomes very difficult to go out and find the perfect road sometimes so this episode is going to take a look at what it takes to find these roads how to look for certain characteristics times etc not only new locations but also how to expand your current rides in in your own town. Of course, one of the easiest ways to find out local information is to ask local riders from clubs, bike shops, even going to local races where you can hit people up is going to be the best way to find out information. But what if you have no time to spare? What if you have to get riding on the road as soon as you get to a new place and you don't have time to track down phone numbers, Twitter handles, etc.? Then I do believe that it is better to have a backup plan, which is what the internet was invented for, wasn't it? It was invented for backup plans, for information, and of course, it's all available now. And there are a bunch of solid websites offering routes, maps, segments, but I'm going to only stick to everyone's favorite. Well, I can't be sure it's everyone's favorite, but it definitely is mine, Strava. And the other options like Map My Ride, Ride with GPS, Google Maps is even really good these days, or there's even apps for iPhone, and a solid one is Easy Route. But I'm going with Strava. So why Strava? 
Strava has really made leaps and bounds in their offerings over the past 12 months, and now they're offering a lot of tools to help you find and make training routes. One bummer is that you have to be a premium member to download any of these routes that you create on Strava. So to get around that with the caveat that you need a Garmin device, I'm going to also use Garmin Connect. And while it's not as sexy as Strava, I've actually had better luck when looking for courses in my area than I have had with Strava. So it might be different in your area depending where you are, but definitely check out one or the other to give yourself a good spectrum of options. So step one, heat map. And there was a really good third-party heat map that came out. It has been absorbed into Strava. So I don't know what the deal was there, but the heat map is really, really useful. So if you start with the Strava heat map, which is available to everyone, by the way, you don't even have to be signed in to check it out. I will link to it in the show notes. You can hunt down the area that you're staying in. And once you're there on the map, what you're looking for are well-worn paths. These are the darkest lines on the heat map and they indicate popular and heavily trafficked routes. And the reason we are searching these out first, whether they're roads that you want to train on or main connector roads to better riding areas, knowing what roads are rideable and possibly the safest option and are frequented by other cyclists is the best starting point in avoiding traffic and bad or dangerous roads. So once you have a bit of an idea of the different areas of the map that you could start to plan routes on, then you want to hit the route builder. And there's one in Strava and one in Garmin Connect. For Strava, there's three great features that are in their builder. And the first one is you can get that heat map straight into the route builder. So that makes the whole step one irrelevant, but it makes it relevant if you're going to go to Garmin Connect. But there is also a popularity button in Strava, which helps direct the ride using actual route information from Strava data. There is also segment explore including climbs which if you are hunting for a climb this is probably the best way to do it. It's going to mean that you can identify whether you want one, two, three, four or or whore category climbs and it will make tracking down those climbs and getting to them a whole lot easier. So on the other side of this is the Garmin Connect courses and you can search these courses based on heat map data. And there is a lot of different rides to look at in Garmin Connect. It's a little clunky, but once you get the hang of it, it's quite easy to navigate through. Also, as of this recording, there is no exploring courses in the new interface, which is a little ugly by the way, but just go to the old one and you'll be perfectly fine. The courses were so much better for where I am, which is Bangkok by the way, but you can create your own course based on this information or you can use the ones that are there already. I find that the ones that are there already are more for commuting, but they do take the best road. So I have to link these up to make my course exactly how I want it. So the thing that I was doing, I was looking for a long ride getting out of the city and doing an out and back with the minimal traffic, the safest road and roads I can actually ride on because there's tollways that if you get stuck on here, you're not allowed to actually ride on them on a bike. So I was trying to avoid all that. Looking at Strava, there was only very small segments. So it was very hard to actually pinpoint a decent ride based on the crappy segments that were around my area. So what I had to do 
I went to Garmin Connect and looked for segments and those segments and courses that people have put in for rides were really good and it gave me an idea of some really long stretches and I matched up the information from the heat map in Strava and found the linking roads between the good segments and so I was able to put a course together that actually meant that I was on a decent road, I was avoiding as much traffic as possible which is very important here. But once you have this down, so once you've been able to go through these steps of looking at the heat map and finding areas that are popular, finding segments or courses and matching those so you have a way to get to the climb if it's you're looking for or an out and back like myself if that's what you're trying to build. Once you have those there is a couple of export options and the export options here there's paid Strava users can export in GPX. The only crappy thing about if you're a free Strava user you can't export you can print a cue sheet that's a bit meh so I would actually maybe use that as a backup if that's the way you want to go but outside of that you can download into Garmin 500 and 510 so you can use their breadcrumb trail feature to actually download you don't need to have a fancy schmancy 800 or 810 and it's not a perfect map but it does work and it can get you there and back I have also linked to a great guide that can go through putting this data onto a Garmin 500 so you get turn for turn directions from courses Garmin users can send their route directly to their device with a TCX file and much like the workout creator for Garmin the route creator is super useful in how easy it is to get this data from Garmin Connect into your computer. So I hope this makes it a little bit easier for you. It really is more about spending time tinkering around and understanding and what the heat map means in terms of the best roads to ride, how to link them to the best segments and how to get to the best hills in the area that you're in. So let's get to the tech hacks and products section and along with the tour comes new products and after the launch of the Ventless is what I'm calling them, there's a couple of little vents on them. But the Aero helmets of last year, the Giro Air Attack, it seems manufacturers have taken on a hybrid approach to the new batch of Aero helmets that are coming out. Of course, there is Specialized S-Works Evade. That was the only reasonably vented Aero option, but it's still fugly as hell though. But anyway, in my mind, it's more about style than substance when it comes to Aero helmets, unfortunately. Uh, the Aero thing is just lost on me. But... It's more about the ribbing that you're going to get from buying one of these first-generation road error helmets, and that was enough to stop people reaching the tipping point and stop people from buying it because they would just get totally ripped on in any bunch rides they were on. I believe that and... A lot of the companies that made these poor attempts at just covering vents on their helmets and calling them aero helmets, I'm looking at you with your monstrosities, Scott and Pock, Bontrager and Cask ugly as hell helmets but now we have these new models including the Giro Synth Bells Star Pro Cask Protone and the new entry the Smith Overtake which I think is pretty cool by the way it is a move away from the traditional road helmet kind of like the POC but I think it's pretty cool and it's going to grow on me a lot quicker than the Air Attack has. But my style pick is definitely the Cask Protone. Something about it makes it look super cool and it is all party and air up front and business down the back and I'd love to see it in some other colors and 
Maybe I'll replace my oversized helmet for it. But what's your take on the new Aero helmets? Do these new shapes make buying one safer, a heckle-free option, and better for hot environments where the ventless ones would just be a nightmare for hot heads? And now, let's get to that quote from the top of the show. It's David Miller. He's not riding the tour this year due to Garmin's policy regarding not taking riders that are carrying illness to the tour. He wasn't sick at the tour. He was sick right before the tour at the UK Champs, and so he was bumped from the team. I'm sure he is absolutely devastated because this is his last year, and it was down to be his last tour. And by all accounts, this is going to strain relationships with Miller and team management, especially because I believe that he lays claim to helping build the team after serving his doping suspension. But either way, Miller will retire at the end of this year. He has been good to watch. Interesting to get an insight into a doper because he was very forthcoming after his doping offense and serving it. And for that reason, he has played an important role in helping clean up the sports act but definitely good luck in the future miller by the sounds of the interview that i will post in the show notes it sounds like you're going to keep achieving and doing big things after cycling so i really look forward to seeing what they are and that's it you have been listening to the semi-pro performance podcast remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash root r-o-u-t-e to find any links used in this week's episode but till next week get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into (laughs) 